Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm glad that you all came to this communion service. I know that the roads were packed up all the way to the freeway. I heard that news. And we have shuttles for different parking places around the area. But I'm glad you came. I'm glad you made the effort and took a slice out of your day, what I think is the most important slice of the day. We're going to celebrate communion. And as you can see, I love this setting, and I hope you do as well, because we're in a circle. And we can see the family. This is the family gathering in the backyard, having a backyard communion service together. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That means that in God's mind, it was already planned before He made any of this that we see. It was part of God's plan to eventually send into time and space, into human history, His only begotten Son who would pay the price for us. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. Somebody once said, you can cut the Bible anywhere and it will bleed. I think that's a good statement. For example, if you were to cut the Bible in Genesis chapter 22, it would bleed. Because there you have Abraham sacrificing almost his only begotten son on Mount Moriah, the very mountain that thousands of years later Jesus would actually die on. You cut it there, it will bleed. If you cut the Bible in Exodus chapter 12, it will bleed. There you have the story of the Passover lamb whose blood is put on the lintels and doorposts of the homes in Egypt. A foreshadowing of the lamb that would die on Passover, Jesus Christ, and take away the sin of the world. If you were to cut the Bible, say, in Numbers chapter 21, it would bleed. There you have the story of Moses lifting up a bronze serpent in the wilderness. And later on, Jesus would say, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man would be lifted up. If you were to cut the Bible in Isaiah chapter 53, it would bleed. There Isaiah predicts the coming one, the Messiah, the suffering one, bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if you were to cut the Bible in Psalm 22, a psalm that we're going to look at just now, so if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 22, it would also bleed because there predicted by David were the sufferings of the Messiah on the cross hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. Did you know that the book of Psalms is quoted by the New Testament authors about 400 times. 400 times the New Testament quotes the book of Psalms. The second most quoted Old Testament book is the prophet Isaiah. He's quoted 47 times. Can you see the difference? The book of Psalms is quoted 10 times more 
than the second most quoted Old Testament book. It shows you that the people in Jesus' day were living their lives in the book of Psalms because it's an honest reflection of what people are going through. Now, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 form a trilogy. Let me explain. Psalm 22 is the good shepherd giving his life for the sheep. Psalm 23 is the great shepherd risen from the dead, tenderly caring for his sheep. And Psalm 24 is the chief shepherd who comes and returns to the earth as the king of glory to reward his sheep. But we want to look at a few verses in Psalm 22. Now you notice how the psalm begins with a very familiar refrain, one that we read in the Gospels. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? It's an interesting psalm because anybody who studies scriptural texts wants to find out the reason something was written and the occasion for which it was written. So some people try to say, well, David wrote this when he was experiencing a very difficult time in his life. Others say that it wasn't David, but another author wrote it, even though David's name is on it. Others will say that it was written by the Jewish people during the Babylonian captivity while they were in exile, suffering and crying out to God. This psalm was written. But here's what's interesting. We can't find any incident in the life of David that this fits. It's, it's the prediction, it's the description of an execution of a righteous person. And, as most scholars point out, it's the most detailed description of death by crucifixion found in the entire Bible, including the Gospel accounts. It's very, very detailed. And, by the way, as I mentioned, crucifixion has not even been invented yet. The psalm begins and ends with one of the sayings of Jesus on the cross. And there's two things I want you to notice in this psalm, Psalm 22. It speaks of the anguish of the cross, the suffering, the anguish. And number two, it speaks of the accomplishment of the cross. The anguish, the pain, the suffering that Jesus was going through, but then it turns a corner and talks about the great accomplishment, and what that means for us. Now, in the anguish that Jesus experienced on the cross, it begins by telling us that Jesus on the cross was at least momentarily abandoned by the Father. For it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. Now, we're familiar with that. We recognize that, don't we? When Jesus hung on the cross, when he was being crucified, the fourth statement he uttered on the cross was, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a startling cry, actually. I say that because up to this point in Jesus' suffering and crucifixion, 
All of the statements that he was making were statements of caring for other people. For example, as he's marching toward Golgotha, the place where he's going to be crucified, he sees a group of people, predominantly women, who are crying for him. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. He's caring for them. Don't, don't worry about my suffering. I want you to just to think about your own. It's going, to be, it's going to be bad. Then Jesus is stapled on a cross. And the first words out of his mouth, the first statement on the cross is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Again, it's a statement caring for others, thinking about others, not thinking about himself. The second statement on the cross is said to somebody who's being crucified next to Jesus, one of the criminals. And Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, it's a question caring for and tending somebody else who is suffering. The third statement that Jesus made on the cross was also a caring statement. His mother was there. John the Apostle was there. And so that his mother would be cared for after death, Jesus looked down and said to Mary, Woman, behold your son. That is John who's now going to take care of you. Son, behold your mother. In other words, I'm caring, I'm honoring my mother before I die. I'm making sure that she's well taken care of. So every statement up to this point has been a statement not focused on himself, but focused on others. Then something happens on the cross. A mysterious darkness covers the entire land, something that even secular authors and historians have written about. For the space of three hours, from 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon, darkness covers the land. It's enshrouded in darkness. And during that time, Jesus says absolutely nothing on the cross. Some scholars believe in those three hours, Jesus was reciting Psalm 22 to himself. We don't know. But what we do know is that after that mysterious darkness and silence, the silence was broken. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now think of that word forsaken. That's a pretty awful word, isn't it? It means to be abandoned. It means to be rejected. It means to be put away or put out. Now, some of you here today know what it's like to be abandoned, forsaken. Some of you in a relationship, a marriage relationship, had your spouse file for divorce or left you or left you for somebody else. Maybe you've had a child alienate themselves from you or a parent or a friend. You know what it's like on a human level to have that tragedy of abandonment or being forsaken. But nobody here knows what it's like to be forsaken by God because that doesn't happen. In fact, Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that you would never have to be forsaken, ever. During the course of Jesus' suffering as he marched toward the cross, there were levels of being forsaken by him. That is, others forsaking him. Number one was Judas. He got up in the middle of the Passover and went out and transacted 
that horrible transaction of betraying Christ. Then Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, wanted them to pray. In fact, his closest buddies, Peter, James, and John, pray with me for one hour. They fell asleep. Then the Roman guards came to arrest Jesus. And the Bible says all of the disciples ran away. And then Peter denied him. Level after level after level, Jesus experiences being forsaken by man, by people. But this is the only time he experiences being forsaken by the Father. In fact, in the Bible, Jesus always referred to God the Father as Father. My Father. Here and only here, on the cross, on Good Friday that we celebrate, did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you, you, forsaken me? Not why did Peter forsake me? Why did Judas forsake me? Why is the world turned against me? I can handle that. Why have you forsaken me? And why is that? What's happening that Jesus would cry out that horrible statement. What's happening is what Isaiah predicted would happen in Isaiah chapter 53. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's what Paul the Apostle would later describe in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. It was at that moment that the sin of the world was laid on Jesus and that exchange took place. Here's a perfect sinless life, God in human flesh, bearing the sins of the world so that he could give his perfect righteousness judicially to anyone who would believe in him. I remember the afternoon I received Christ in San Jose, California, back in 19... And um, I remember hearing the gospel that Jesus died for me and wants to give me his life and that he wants me to give him my life. And I remember distinctly thinking, well, that sounds crazy to me. He's getting a pretty bad deal. My life in exchange for his life? I mean, if he's God in human flesh and he's perfect, he's getting the worst end of the deal. But then again, I thought I'm getting the best end of the deal and I'd be an idiot to pass it up. And not wanting to be an idiot, I didn't pass it up. It was then and there that I received Christ. I'm going to give him my life. I'm going to surrender my life to him. I'm going to entrust my life to him and I'm going to receive his perfection and his righteousness accounted to me on my behalf. That's why he was forsaken by God. Now, as the psalm continues, we find that it describes not only will this sin bearer, Jesus, our Messiah who died, be abandoned by God, but he'll be alienated by mankind. And down in verse 6, We see the mockery that Jesus would suffer on the cross. It says in that psalm, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All those who see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip and they shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights 
in him. It's interesting that Jesus would say or David would write that the Messiah would declare, I am a worm and no man. Because a worm is, was considered the lowest of all creatures known to man. The very lowest. Despised. Not one that you would stop at and say, oh, look at that little worm. Let's take it home for a pet. Now, some people would, but I have other things to say about that. They're considered the lowest part of creation. But many will point out something interesting, that the worm described here was thought to be, by many scholars, what's called the crimson crocus, a little worm that has a scarlet dye inside of its body, and when that worm is crushed, the dye is extracted, and they used it to dye the royal robes of kings and queens. Very suggestive, isn't it? That it was Jesus being crushed, being bruised, being wounded, being sacrificed, that would clothe us with his righteousness. It's a very, very interesting thought. And we celebrate that. That his sin, our sin, is washed away by his blood. What can wash away my sin? You know it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. As the psalm continues, the physical suffering of the crucifixion is noted. In verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan, a figurative expression, have encircled me. In verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. They tell us that crucifixion is, is horrible. In fact, did you know that crucifixion was such a horrible kind of death that a whole new word had to be invented to describe it? The word excruciating is a word that means out from the cross. Excruciating, out from the cross, it describes the horrible, immense, intense pain suffered by people experiencing crucifixion. It's accompanied by profuse perspiration, intense pain, thirst. It says, my heart melts like wax. It is melted within me. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of the earth or to the dust of death. Look at verse 16. The dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Speaking of the spikes or the nails that would put them on the cross. I can count all my bones. Typically in crucifixion, bones were broken because it was such a long, prolonged, intense death that as an act of mercy, the soldiers would break the tibia and fibula typically so that the patient would or the victim would suffocate quickly. But they, they didn't do that to Jesus. I count all my bones. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. You should probably know that crucifixion was not invented by the Romans. The Romans picked it up because they thought it was a good way to show people a lesson. Don't mess with the Roman government. The Persians were the ones that invented crucifixion. And here was the idea of the ancient Persians. 
the victim should be lifted up and killed off of the earth because the earth was considered to be sacred. So if we could devise a way by lifting up a victim on a piece of wood suspended off of the earth, dying slowly, that was their punishment. The Romans picked up on that. Jesus, of course, experienced immense suffering even before the cross. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and before he was arrested, the Bible says he was sweating great drops of blood, a medical phenomenon known as hematidrosis, where the tiny capillaries that form the web around the sweat glands burst and inject blood into the sweat glands themselves so that a person who's in extreme suffering will sweat great drops of blood. Then he stood several trials that night before the high priest, before the Sanhedrin, in the morning before Pontius Pilate, and then Herod, and then back to Pilate, during which time he was scourged, beaten with a whip, a cat of nine tails, leather thongs embedded with lead and glass and bone that would grab the flesh and tear it to pieces. A crown of thorns was put on Jesus' head. And then they put the upper cross beam called the patibulum on Jesus' shoulders, weighing between 75 and 100 pounds. And in that weakened state, he would have to carry that toward the place of execution called Golgotha. Spikes were then affixed in the wrists, considered to be part of the hand back then, at the radius and the ulna, so that the person crucified would lift up on the nails and push up by the nails on the feet in order to take a breath until eventually they could take no more breaths at all and they would suffocate. Death by crucifixion was horrible. But here's the best part. In Psalm 22, after speaking about the anguish, there seems to be a change by the author He tells us about the accomplishments. Verse 19 begins that change. It says, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Now, there you can see a plain change in the text. It begins in despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then it says, but God has answered me. So we move from the anguish of the cross to number two, the accomplishment of the cross. I'm not going to read it all to you because we want to take communion. But accomplishment number one, by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the whole world could, could, not would, but could be saved. He would die for the sin of the world and he would, he would embrace a worldwide congregation. Now listen carefully. I'm just going to read a couple of select sentences. The psalmist says in verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. In verse 23, he mentions the descendants of Jacob, the offspring of Israel. 
Then in verse 25, the great congregation. Then in verse 27, notice, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. And then the second to the last verse, verse 30, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. This is what I want you to see. By Jesus' death on the cross, he could anticipate a growing and ever-widening worldwide congregation. Embracing people, not just Jews, not just descendants of Jacob, not just the people of Israel, not just my brethren, not just this congregation, but to the ends of the earth, people not yet born. Jesus had you in mind when he died on the cross. Jesus thought of you being here today celebrating the hope of eternal life that you now have because of what he did on the cross. There's a story in World War II of a soldier who was killed. His buddies wanted to give him a decent burial. But there was a problem. The only cemetery nearby was a Roman Catholic cemetery, but their friend was a Protestant. They asked the priest, could we give our comrade a decent burial? We want to bury our friend in your cemetery. The priest said, is he a Catholic? The men said, no, he's not. He's a Protestant. The priest said, I'm sorry, you cannot bury your friend in this cemetery. It's a Catholic cemetery only. But you can bury your friend outside the fence. So they dug a hole outside of the cemetery fence and they buried their friend. The next day, before they were going back to the battle, they decided to pay last respects to their friend. They were going to visit the grave. They couldn't find it. They looked everywhere. They couldn't find it. Finally, they found that priest. And they said, you told us to bury him outside the fence, so we did, but we can't find his grave. The priest said, well, I was bothered last night by the whole situation yesterday and not being able to bury your friend in the cemetery, and I couldn't sleep. So I got up in the middle of the night and I moved the fence to include your friend. That's what Jesus did. He, in, he moved the fence. You said, I want to come to Christ, so he moved the fence. You said, I'm going to come to Christ, so he moved the fence. And he included anyone who is not even yet born. Only God knows who they are. And I conclude with the very last verse. Verse 31. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. That he has done this. Now listen carefully. The word done is the word asa. It means completed. It means finished. Does that ring a bell? The sixth saying of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So there's the accomplishment of the cross, a worldwide congregation of people who would believe in him. And number two, a work that is completed that no one here can add to or take away from. And you and I are about to take the elements that speak of a completed, finished, accomplished task.
If you could be saved any other way, then by the blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus wouldn't have died on that cross. The fact that he went to die and that he gave himself and was forsaken by God and alienated by man was so that he could move the fence for you, my friend, and for me. And we're included because of what we celebrate today. It might be that everybody here, everybody standing, everybody sitting, thousands of people, all of you are saved. But it could be that some of you are not. That would be odd then, would it not, for you to take the elements that state this is the body and this is the blood of Jesus when you yourself have never personally appropriated by faith Jesus in your heart, in your life. You've never committed yourself to Him. If that's true and you want to receive Christ right now where you're sitting. In fact, let's just have everybody bow their head for a moment. And if you have not received Christ yet, you say this to Him, and you mean this from your heart. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that He shed His blood for my sin, and He rose from the dead for me. I'm sorry for my sin. I turn from it and I turn to you as my Savior and want to follow you as my Master. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me your power to live a life that is pleasing to you with your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.